Welcome to Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast whose only possible audience, according to the troll comment I recently got on YouTube anyway, is apparently men. Because apparently only men care about history. Who knew? All the dudes out there listening, let me know if listening to a podcast titled Bitchy History is making you uncomfortable or emasculating you in any way. I won't change the name, but I will laugh at you. Welcome to episode 19, where we switch gears back into American History 101 and learn what new drama the end of the French and Indian War will bring to the colonies. Hint, it's a lot. The French and Indian War was essentially a stalemate for several years, while Britain and France continued to fight each other in Europe during the Seven Years' War. By 1757, the war turned in Britain's favor in both India and French Canada. France could see the writing on the wall, and they began offering peace negotiations. Smelling weakness, the British asked for some really absurd concessions by the French in both land and commercial trade, and France said, are you nuts? We aren't that bad off yet. And the French king, Louis XV, did what anyone does when faced with defeat by a bigger kid. He ran off to tell his big brother, or in his case, his cousin, the Spanish king. Charles III agrees to an alliance known as the Family Compact in 1761. The terms say that Spain would declare war on Great Britain if the war didn't end before May 1st of 1762. This was meant mostly to try to scare the British into giving better terms for that peace agreement. But instead, the British just preemptively declared war on Spain in January of 1762. The Spanish didn't actually bring that much to the team, to be honest. So it was a bit like France ran to their asthmatic cousin with an allergy to gluten, milk, and peanuts and asked for help defeating their bully. The British Navy quickly proved themselves against the Spanish. You'd think the Spanish would have learned that the British Navy is not something to trifle with already, but 1588 was a while back, so maybe they thought they'd do better this time. They didn't. British forces seized French Caribbean islands, Spanish Cuba, and the Philippines. Fighting in Europe ended after a failed Spanish invasion of their British ally of Portugal. By 1763, French and Spanish diplomats are beginning to seek peace seriously. Then comes the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1763, in which the British essentially got everything they demanded from the French during the first set of peace negotiations. The size of British holdings in the Americas more than doubled, with Britain gaining significant territory in North America, including all of the French territory east of the Mississippi River, the area in dispute that had caused this entire conflict, and Spanish Florida. Spain did get Cuba back, for now anyway. It's a canon event. We need Spain to have Cuba so we can get the whole remember the main to hell with Spain rhyme from newspapers in 1898. So everything's good, right? The American colonists got the land they wanted, and Britain got to feel good about kicking France and Spain's ass. The North American colonies are ecstatic at first. The French are no longer a threat on their northern and western border for the first time in nearly a century. France's stupid French influence on the continent will probably take a hike, and without all that conflict with the French and the colonies, the British colonies can go back to the business of being an extremely profitable colony. Everything's fantastic. And nothing can go wrong. Oh no, it all went wrong! Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. Britain's victory ends up sowing the seeds of a huge amount of tension between the American colonies and the British, mostly because of several rather foolish policy decisions that the British make in the aftermath of the war. Or at least foolish in retrospect. They more or less made sense at the time. The major factor that leads to all of this is money. See, wars cost money. Lots of money. Take a look at America's military budget sometime for a fun understanding of how easy it would be to cancel all of the student loans in America if we weren't spending it all on R&D for new fighter jets, 
that are ultimately scrapped because no one wanted the new fighter jets in the first place. I promise you won't scream in frustration. But back to the 1700s, the French and Indian War cost the British government about 70 million pounds and doubled their national debt to around 140 million pounds. And that's in 1760s dollars, not 2000s dollars. I would try to correct that for inflation, but I don't think bazillion is actually a real word, and I don't want to figure out what the right term would be. It might kill me. So this war, which, if you remember, was nominally started by the colonies, cost a staggering sum of money. The British had to pay for it somehow, and while they tried to raise taxes back in merry old England with the 1763 Cider Act, which is fully titled, An Act for Granting to His Majesty Several Additional Duties Upon Wines Imported into This Kingdom and Certain Duties Upon All Cider and Perry, that tax did not end up going over well with the population at all. If you think the Boston Tea Party was an overreaction, and it kind of was, but we'll get to that in a later episode, then you ain't seen nothing yet. The reaction to the Cider Act was absolutely riotous. Literally, we call the reaction the Cider Riots for a reason. Protesters created anti-excise pamphlets and even a slogan, resurrected from the protest of the 1733 excise tax, of liberty, property, and no excise. They even had merch for the protests. Speaking of which, Bitchy History has merch. It's all very cool, and I might actually make a Liberty Property and No Excise mug eventually, too, just as an homage to the Cider Riots. Attempts were made to calm the populace by amending the law, but it didn't really do much to calm the populace, who was steaming mad about the idea that their cider prices were going to be driven up by the excise tax. Cider was an enormously popular drink in England, and it was seen as an onerous and overburdensome tax on the poor especially. American colonists were, however, completely untouched by the Cider Act. They were, however, keenly watching the news about the protests unfold through the newspapers. Newspapers in the colonies often reprinted articles from British newspapers about the protests that were happening throughout England. And then came the Stamp Act of 1765, and suddenly Americans were hit with the same kind of taxation that had caused so much discord in England. But before we get into the details of all of that taxation without representation anger in the colonies, we need to take a step back and consider what the relationship between Britain and the colonies had been up until that point. And to understand that, we need to talk about a concept known as salutary neglect. This was an 18th century policy that governed the relationship between the colonies and the British crown. Essentially, it was a hands-off policy where the British government technically had laws making a variety of common practices in the colonies illegal, but in practice, they avoided enforcing most of them. Laws that governed trade were especially lax in the colonies. As long as they remained loyal to Britain and contributed to the economic growth of their parent country, England basically let them run things the way they wanted to. A modern understanding of this can be seen in the practice of hedohin, roughly translated as tolerated in the Netherlands. Hedohin is used for a situation or activity that is technically illegal but actively tolerated by the government, since everyone knows that the problem can't actually be abolished by law. Officially, if you look at the laws in the Netherlands, pot is illegal. In practice, there's a coffee shop on every corner in Amsterdam's red light district. And as long as they pay their taxes and follow the general larger laws, like not selling to minors, there's not a lot of chance that they'll be stormed by the police and arrested and have their business shut down. The term salutary neglect is often thought to come from a speech by Edmund Burke at the House of Commons on March 22, 1775, in which he said, 
that I know that the colonies in general owe little or nothing to any care of ours, and that they are not squeezed into this happy form by the constraints of watchful and suspicious government, but that through a wise and salutary neglect, a generous nature has been suffered to take her own way to perfection. When I reflect upon these effects, when I see how profitable they have been to us, I feel all the pride of power sink, and all presumption in the wisdom of human contrivances melts and die away within me." By which Burke is essentially saying, what purpose does government actually serve? The period of salutary neglect had been long running in the American colonies, starting in the mid-1600s. For most of the 17th century, the British government had no real official policies in place regarding the colonies. The companies, merchants, and independent corporations in the colonies pretty much handled their own business and acted as an independent government, despite having loyalty and financial obligations to Britain. Then in 1651, that changed. Britain began to take an interest and pass the Navigation Act. It was one of the first trade regulations to be passed in the American colonies. The law required that all goods shipped to and from the American colonies had to be carried on English ships in an attempt to keep the colonists from engaging in trade with other countries. Here's a quote from the book Wars of the Age of Louis XIV. The Navigation Act's immediate object was mundane, to stop the Dutch from carrying fish and other colonial products to England, and to compel Italian merchants to ship their raw silk on English rather than Dutch ships. Other products targeted by the Act were Turkish weaves, Spanish wool, colonial wines, and Neapolitan olive oil. Longer term and more fundamentally, the Navigation Act liberated internal trade within a previously closed English system, disallowing old royal monopolies and exclusive charter companies and eroding patronage systems in favor of freer, but not free, trade and a wide commercial sense of national interest. In a very real sense, this was the 17th century version of buy local and the performative made in America marketing that we see today. However, in practice, the Navigation Acts were nearly unenforceable, and the British government rarely put in any effort to enforce them. Let's face it, the East Coast is long, and there's a lot of ports or places for ships to put in to bring in smuggled goods using smaller boats, and the amount of money it would take to actually enforce the laws would dwarf the amount that the British stood to make from any trade regulations. There were a few lonely attempts by the British to strengthen control over the colonies throughout the years, namely in the 1680s when they revoked the Massachusetts Bay Colony's charter as punishment for disobeying British orders. But this attempt was highly unpopular and failed badly. When news of the Glorious Revolution in 1689 reached the colony's shores, it prompted the colonists to simply overthrow the officials sent by England. So, you know, the whole rebellious colonists standing up to Britain over what they viewed as unfair retaliation against the Massachusetts Bay Colony isn't actually unique when it happens in the 1770s either. Been there, done that. It's just that in the 1770s, it ends up escalating to full-blown revolution instead of just the blip of rebellion that happened in the 1680s. While it had been in practice for a while, salutary neglect didn't really become the officially unofficial, so to speak, policy of British interaction with the colonies until Robert Walpole took over as the Lord of the Treasury in 1721. Walpole's main goal was to increase taxable wealth in England to help pay off debts occurred during various wars against Spain and France. To accomplish his goals, Walpole discouraged any enforcement of trade laws and regulations in the colonies, stating, "...if no restrictions were placed on the colonies, they would flourish." Look, I'm not going to say this is the 18th century version of free market capitalism, but I'm not not going to say it either. Make of that what you will. 
Basically, Walpole and other sundry British politicians believe that less regulation would end up netting the British government a better financial return in the long run. Or if you believe other historians, Walpole and his contemporaries were just incredibly bad at their jobs and salutary neglect was an excuse for their administrative inefficiency, financial stringency, and political incompetence, rather than a planned out deliberate economic policy. Whichever of those versions or combination thereof you choose to believe, I certainly won't tell you which one is right, mostly because there's no way to know. Incompetence is funnier, but that's just my opinion. I will also say that incompetence makes what happens when salutary neglect comes to an end make a lot more sense, though. To make what happens next make more sense, let me put it in an allegory. Imagine you're a full-grown adult. You've left the nest, but you generally have a healthy support structure with your parent, and you know that you can go to them if you need something. Every now and then, you might find yourself with a bad month where you're short on rent or have an emergency cavity filling that needs to be paid for, and you go to your parent for a loan. They help you out, and you always pay them back. It's just agreed on. They don't have to demand the money. You always pay back the loan. Then one day, you decide to buy a house. It just makes sense. Rent prices are absurd. A mortgage would be much lower. Only you don't have the money for a down payment, so you go to your parent for help. They agree to front you the cash. You buy the house and move in and everything is fine, except that was a much bigger loan than the previous ones and your parent had to dig deep into their retirement fund for it. So they're a bit more aggressive about you paying them back than they used to be. They keep coming around, criticizing your spending habits, telling you how to live your life, saying, you really shouldn't have a pool built until you pay me back and playing that I paid for it so this is my house and you have to follow my rules card. And you keep reminding them that you agreed to pay them back on a certain schedule and you haven't missed a single payment yet, so they really need to just leave you to it. Only they won't stop coming over and letting themselves in to go through your receipts and ask for money. So finally, you change the locks, send them an email saying, hey, this is bad behavior and until you let up, I'll pay you, but I'll do it my way and you need to chill and you block their number. Only instead of this escalating to your mom writing a nasty post on the Am I the Asshole subreddit, it escalates into an all-out revolution. That's how the end of the French and Indian War be. See, a lot of people will cheekily joke that the cause of the Revolutionary War was a bunch of white men who didn't want to pay their taxes. And while there's certainly some truth to those jokes in some ways, it really wasn't ever about them not wanting to pay their taxes. It was more about them not wanting the relationship between the colonies and Britain to change. They would pay their bills. They just wanted to do it their own way without what they saw as excessive micromanaging from the British Parliament thousands of miles away. We'll get into the complexities of the actual taxation of the Stamp Act and Townshend Acts in a later episode, but it's important to understand that the main issue wasn't necessarily taxation in and of itself. It was about representation and the micromanagement of the economics of the colony after decades of Britain taking a hands-off approach. That's not to say that the colonies didn't have a responsibility to pay for the war that they kind of started and then needed their parents' help to finish. But arguably, the colonists never said that they didn't want to pay their taxes. They just didn't want unilateral control by Parliament to change the way that they'd been running things for a very long time. The colonies had grown used to seeing themselves as a peer to Great Britain at this point, and they didn't much like being reminded that they were actually essentially a vassal state. They just wanted to keep the status quo, or the status quo the way they understood it anyway, just the way it had been. Whether it was reasonable to expect that, given how much the French and Indian War had cost Great Britain, is another question entirely, of course. Also, it's not exactly a coincidence that the end of salutary neglect did cramp the style of a lot of smugglers. 
one of them being John Hancock, but that's a topic for another episode as well. Thank you for tuning in to listen to me bitch about history. This was a slightly shorter episode than usual, but to be fair, I think I gave you a lot of complex shit to think about, and I didn't want to overwhelm you. Next week, the show will be back with another break from American History 101. We'll be talking about Moms for Liberty. Ugh. I may need to be drinking while I record that one, so feel free to tune in after 5pm so you can also drink while listening. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next Monday.